0: This is is a a dangerous thing to do right at the beginning of a sermon when you don't preach very often, but I should make an unplanned reference. Uh, It's so beautiful that I thought of... This poet, Wendell Berry, said there are no unsacred places. There are just sacred places and desecrated places. And it's so beautiful that it's hard not to think of that. I think we might still be in one of the sacred places. So, anyhow, that has nothing to do, really, with anything, but has to do with how beautiful it is. Um, I am Sam. I'm uh, the guest pinch-hitting today. Um, I'm really grateful to be here. Am I good, Wesley? Okay, great. Um, I'm really glad to be here. I'm very thankful for it. It's not a small thing to be asked to preach, uh, and not a small thing to be asked to preach to you. Um, I I should tell you who I am other than my name Uh, I'm a graduate student here I study political science of all things and it probably should not be lost on you and won't be lost on you by the end of this that a political science PhD student has been asked to preach on July the 4th a dangerous thing to ask we'll see if I can get us through it um, I came from small-town Ohio, where I, uh, not too long after hitting puberty, lost my, my faith. Those things don't have to do with each other in this story, though they sometimes do. Um, yeah, that was supposed to be a laugh track at that one, but that's okay. Um, and the way I lost my faith will be a big part of the sermon today. And the sermon today is not about how to get into heaven, though you should want to go there and be with God. Um, But if you collapse Christianity down into getting into heaven, you have missed a great majority of what it's about. And so what I'm going to be talking about today is not about how to get into heaven, it's about the other stuff, some of the other stuff anyway. Um, So I, I lost my faith in part. Uh, because I I took myself a bit too seriously, maybe. Uh, But we'll get to that. I should tell you what the point of this sermon is, I suppose. The big idea, and I do this when I teach students, is I tell them kind of the big, big idea, and you should probably return to it if you can in your mind, and it is that Christ is both the highest example and the meaning of what is lovely, good, true, and beautiful. However... We can miss or even pervert this fact even when we think about what is excellent and good and true and beautiful. Of course, we can miss it if we're thinking about and trying to pursue what isn't good and true and beautiful, but we can miss it even when we pursue what's true and good and beautiful. And another shorter way to say this is that you should be on your guard because Philippians 4, 8, and 9, which is what my text is today, is not true without Christ. It's just false. So keep that in mind. That will be kind of the arc of the sermon is that I'm going to tell you about this passage which was important to me even when I was not a Christian but which I discovered is just not true without him. All right. I promise not to be so serious the whole time. Well, I don't know. All right. So here's the text. Maybe you know it. Finally, brothers, whatever is true and I would add sisters Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I'll read it again, because you're not reading it. it would be hard to remember. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, Paul is exploding with different words here. He can, list, he can go on and on. He's just trying to list as many things he can think of at the time. Whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Now... Matt asked me to preach on something that had been important to me, and sort of by default this passage came to mind, because I just didn't buy the rest of Scripture when I was an atheist, but I thought this passage made some sense to me. There's nothing about Jesus here, no weird christian stuff. This is stuff that seems like anyone could agree to, except for that God of Peace business at the end. Whatever is true and good and lovely, you should think about it, and you should put it into practice. I bought that. And yet... I was wary of Christianity because I was confused by the very center of its story, the crucifixion of Jesus. I thought, how could a religion be about something so ugly, so gruesome, and yet tell you to think about the lovely things? And in fact, I thought, this moment is even a perverse moment. It's telling us that there's a propitiation for justice and God is a perfect God of justice, totally just, and yet forgiving. And I just thought, well, if justice demands punishment, it doesn't also demand forgiveness. That can't possibly be the case, I thought. And so the reason this passage is important is that I, have come, I over time, have come to be able to reconcile the fact of what is lovely and true and good with the fact of just the ugliness of... And the gruesome slaughter that is the cross. So we'll get to Jesus. I know you—you you know if you, your passage doesn't directly have to do with Jesus, you should jump over a hedge and get to get to Jesus. <laughs> anyway, so the standard interpretation of this text, I'm going to start with because you probably have heard it before. In fact, there's an entire long sermon series on Philippians that you should go back and listen to in August of last year, and that did a great job. So. Go back and listen to it. It'll be better than this, but it'll take longer. Um, The standard interpretation is that we should think of Paul, the writer of this letter, imprisoned in Rome under the principalities and powers, in prison writing to Philippi to tell them to be unified and of one mind in Christ. And when Matt preached on this particular passage, he said that Scripture and Jesus himself, that we should should look out at them like we're looking out at a beautiful landscape through a window. And that we should dwell on what is beautiful and good and commendable and lovely about that landscape and let it go down deep into us so that when we are accosted or when we're presented with an opportunity, those good and lovely and true things just naturally flow out of us. And Matt, being the good preacher that he is, said, the danger is that we will look at the landscape and get distracted or focus entirely on our own reflection in the mirror. That, my friends, is just good preaching. Uh, it's just good illustration. Um, other things that he said is that, and he did make this joke, though it is, is ripe to make, is that we should... Pay attention to the scrolls of scripture, scripture instead of scrolling through social media. He didn't make that joke, but obviously the lack of laughter right now <laughs> tells me there's a good reason why he didn't. Uh, but there's something true about that: is that this rush of life that it's hard to make sense of, that we should go down and spend deep, slow time in the waters of Scripture. That otherwise we'll never be able to make sense of the world and we'll never be the sorts of people that people rightly associate with Christ. Now, this is all true. We probably could all do with a little more time with Scripture and a little deeper reflection on these things. Uh, but I want to inject some concern on this, this, uh, this piece of Scripture, in part because I just think it's really hard. Not because that application is untrue, Uh, or it's incomplete in some way. It's just that from what I have seen of human behavior and of my own behavior, uh, it's just not so simple as thinking about the good and putting into practice. So another kind of sub-point you might say is that we can be profoundly wrong about what we think is lovely and good and true and beautiful. And that the key thing to remember is that Christ is the exemplar and the meaning of what is true and good. So remember that. Um, what I'm going to do to try to demonstrate you, to you the fact that we could be wrong about these kinds of things, it will make me feel sick to talk about it. Um, so just fair, fair warning. You may lose your breakfast. Um, I hope not, but baby. All right. That's one page down, so that's good. <laughs> so how can we how can we go wrong? How I'm going to tell you that we can go wrong is I'm going to tell you about two white English poets and two black American theologians and thinkers. And it will become pretty obvious why we're going that direction on the 4th of July. This is John Milton writing in 1644. He's trying to defend the freedom of the press, and he says that He that can apprehend, or they that can apprehend and consider vice with all her baits and seeming pleasures, and yet abstain, and yet distinguish, and yet prefer that which is truly better, they are the true Christian. I don't know about the true Christian business. That's one way to define Christianity. But certainly, he's making us pay attention to the fact that it's just very easy to look for answers that are convenient to you that make you feel good and that when you seek for the true the good and the beautiful you might find the convenient relaxing and easy so i won't talk more about anybody from 1644 but (laughs) (laughs) this next quote is one that i think of every good friday and which is it's hard for me to get through without shedding a tear because it It makes me fear that I do not understand Jesus. Um, This is by W.H. Auden, a favorite of mine, and it's written in 1970, or published then anyway. And the state of mind you've got to get into that he's asking us to think about is, we all wonder about what we might have done in the garden, about whether we might have been the cause of the fall. But he's telling us we ought to think about who we might have been and what we might have been doing on Good Friday. Just as we were all potentially in Adam when he fell, so we were all potentially in Jerusalem on that first Good Friday, before there was an Easter, a Pentecost, a Christian, or a church. It seems to me worthwhile asking ourselves who we should have been and what we should have been doing. In my most optimistic mood, I see myself as a Hellenized Jew from Alexandria visiting an intellectual friend. No one of great importance, but someone who thinks hard about what's good and true and lovely. We are walking along, engaged in philosophical argument. Our path takes us past the base of Golgotha, the place of the skull where Christ was crucified. (laughs) Looking up, we see an all-too-familiar sight. Three crosses surrounded by a jeering crowd. Frowning with prim distaste, I say, it's disgusting the way the mob enjoy such things. Why can't the authorities execute criminals humanely and in private by giving them hemlock to drink as they did with Socrates? Then, averting my eyes, and this is the kicker, averting my eyes from the disagreeable spectacle, I resume our fascinating discussion on the nature of the true, the good, and the beautiful. I worry so much that I would spend all this time thinking about what's really lovely and then see the pinnacle of Christ and his sacrifice and what is honorable and good and turn away. The crucifixion was a challenge to early Christians because they believed that, or they were challenged by the idea that if he was truly God, he would not have been crucified, and if he was crucified, he could not have been God. It is an utter scandal, Good Friday, but it is the pinnacle of the story. This, like, turning point upon which all of our hopes lie. Alright. I made it past that one. Now, I said that I struggled personally with the idea that justice and forgiveness could ever be reconciled. And I was actually presented personally with the opportunity to try to figure this out, when someone deeply wronged me, someone who I once truly loved and who I trusted, even betrayed me. Take a drink. This person betrayed me, and I thought I could just move on without settling the matter. And I found myself on the most beautiful day, the first day of spring in Central Park, walking, and looking around, and I saw you know, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters playing together. I saw young people in love laying on picnic blankets. And I saw even just, it's weird what wrenches you. I saw people playing frisbee with their dogs, and it hurt me. And I saw old people on park benches holding hands. And I thought, I am alone, and they are together and i thought how is it that someone who you once truly loved and who has utterly betrayed you how could it be right not to at least try to forgive and at that moment i realized that god was in the same position not to put my place not put myself in the place of god but i realized that maybe the story of justice and forgiveness and the way they go together is not garbage And in fact, there's something deeply true about how justice and forgiveness go together. And I didn't understand that until I was presented with the opportunity to forgive someone, and I took it. And I remember talking to a pastor friend afterward, and I was like, what is it that happened to me? He was like, you had a spiritual experience. And I said, well, I don't believe in God, how can I have a spiritual experience? So, I I mean, we're at 14 minutes, I could wrap it up here and tell you a nice story about Jesus and, uh, you know, how he's the true meaning of all this kind of stuff, I can kind of lay in the plane pretty easily, but I think we're just kind of getting into the difficulty of this stuff. Um, It would be odd if I let a day like this pass, I grew up watching towers fall and Wall Street fall and... and, uh, the Middle East being invaded, and, and I came of age in a time where racial strife was increasing. And it just seems odd to let some day like July the 4th pass without some commentary on the fact that people could be explicitly about something valuable, but actually in their actions not living up to the real meaning of those concepts. That seems like I probably should say something about it. So we had two white English poets, now it's time for two black American thinkers. The first of which is Frederick Douglass. Now, Douglass wrote and delivered this speech on July the 5th in 1852, and the name of the speech is What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? Now, if you don't know where this is going already, I think perhaps you should go and study some history or pay a bit more attention. Here's what Douglass says. What to the, to the American slave is your 4th of July? Notice your 4th of July. I answer a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty and unholy license, your national graces, greatness swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are impudence, your souths of liberty and equality hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings with all your religious parade and your solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes. There is not a nation on earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. Now, the, the, I mean, he was a renowned orator. That's not my words. I'm just reading them. They're pretty good. Uh, really good. Now, the primary wrong here is obviously slavery. Lincoln, of, who, of whose cabinet Douglas was a member, Lincoln said at his second inaugural address, Until every drop of blood drawn by the lash is repaid by the sword, this will go on until God stops it. Uh, pretty intense words. So that's the primary wrong, but relating to the point at hand, we can try to cover up our national and personal sins with high ideals, but when we do that, we make people think we didn't believe it in the first place, and probably those ideals are wrong. They're garbage. And there's more we'll talk about what might have to do with the 4th of July, but maybe think also about the 25th of December end of Good Friday and Easter and Pentecost, days which can either be a peril or a potential witness to people. They can either be moments of utter hypocrisy and depth of gross injustice, or they can be beautiful witness to the people of Christ. Douglas is not calling us to reject the ideals of faith or liberty or equality. He is telling us to live up to them and we have to heed Douglas Douglas's warning not just as citizens of a kingdom on earth or as an empire or of a of a country republic but also as subjects of a king in heaven now you're probably thinking i'm so lucky that everything has been fixed since douglas gave that speech um But in fact, we turn to someone who is not speaking in 1852, but in 2011, uh, James Cone, who died only a few years ago and is an eminent black theologian. And in his book, this will give away a great deal of what I'm about to say, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, Cone said that a culture which was obsessed with freedom and with Christianity Hardly in the 20th and the 19th century, there was nary a comparison between the crucifixion and lynching. Theologians did not even put it together. And Cohn points us to the fact that lynching, unlike that moment with Auden, where Auden turns away from the cross because it is disgusting, lynching was often a cultural event. You would be excused from school. There would be a barbecue there would be uh, newspapers showing up, and uh, giving you an announcement for things about how great this event should be, and they sold pictures, and, and yet they did not know who committed the lynching. America has lynched blacks in the same manner that Romans lynched Jesus. And if we are obsessed with power in the United States, we will be more like the people who exonerated Barabbas, and we will be more like Pilate washing his hands than we are like Jesus. And Cohn says, it takes a tremendous amount of theological blindness to have all of those things be true. To be obsessed with Christianity and obsessed with freedom, and yet celebrate these things as a cultural event. And now you're probably thinking, well, you know, there's, there's no lynching, Sam. We're, we're done with that. I won't encourage you to watch the videos of George Floyd and Amara Aubrey being murdered, but it's very hard not to think of lynching when you see them. And if that's not close enough to home, the other day I was at a protest near the Board of Trustees meeting and a young black woman was shoved forcibly out of a space by police And there were people crowding in on her with cameras and asking her for comment. And what did she say? What did she say? She said, why won't you help me instead of just trying to film me? And then she said, black trauma is not your entertainment. I think I get in moods where I think all learning is analogical. And if you cannot see the similarities between the cultural event of lynching in the past and the cultural event that the assault of black people by police is now, you have probably missed something important. But that's not the purpose of the sermon. Now, if you don't feel sick now, I, I don't know what will make you feel that way. But Cohn, being a Christian, is not caught in despair. He finishes this book entitled Cross in the Lynching Tree of All Things by saying, We are bound together in America by faith and tragedy. All the hatred we have expressed toward one another cannot destroy the profound mutual love and solidarity that flow deeply between us. No two people in America have had more violent and loving encounters than black and white people. We have been made brothers and sisters by the blood of the lynching tree, by the blood of sexual union, and by the blood of the cross of Jesus. No gulf between blacks and whites is too great to overcome, and if you have lost the thread of the sermon, you are going to find it again now. For our beauty is more enduring than our brutality. What God joins together, no one can tear apart. God took the evil of the cross and the lynching tree and transformed them both into the triumphant beauty of the divine. If America has the courage to confront and the great sin and ongoing legacy of white supremacy with the repentance and reparation, there is hope beyond tragedy. Now Cohn is already pointing us to where we should be going, and that is back to the cross, back to Jesus. And maybe it feels like there's no way I could ever figure this out, Sam. People who have thought they have gotten it dead right have gotten it dead wrong. People who are celebrating the things that they think are good and lovely and true and holy have utterly missed it. And even when they think they are about Jesus, they have done that. So what hope is there? Fortunately, like James Cone, we also do not need to stick in despair. The first thing to say is that the past does not determine the future. Jesus, by his redeeming work, makes all things new. I think we might even sing about that. Your personal past, your social past, your political past, your spiritual past do not define your spiritual future. The second thing is that we're super fortunate to actually have examples in our midst of people getting this right. A while ago, Alison Otwell preached a sermon on prayer. And what was the explanation for why she understood prayer? It was that she served as a chaplain with people suffering and prayed with them. She put it into practice. And then a few weeks ago, Chris Clark gave a sermon on racial reconciliation in Corinthians. And the great impossibility that that seems to present. But then he turned and said, my own life actually shows how this can be true. And he understands scripture at a greater level than he would have if he had not lived it. And he has brought to us good things to know and think about. God and ourselves, and to put them into practice. Now, I said I would talk about Jesus at the end. And this is, I think, you probably don't yet understand how your mind might be transformed. I I certainly didn't. This only occurred to me last night. I wasn't sure how the sermon would end. So midway through Jesus' ministry after the desert, and after the Sermon on the Mount, and even after the Transfiguration, these great high things in which Jesus triumphs, Jesus confides in the disciples that he is going to die. And Peter rejects this. He said, far be it from you. There's no way you're too lovely and too good and too beautiful. There's no way that you could die and Jesus says get behind me Satan you are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. Why am I telling you this story? This whole sermon is supposed to be about how Philippians 4.8 is just not true if Jesus is not the Christ. We are like Peter so often. We think that The lovely and the true and the commendable and the excellent must mean that we will not live sacrificial lives in which we die for our enemies. It could never mean loss and sacrifice and death, Peter thinks. And in that moment, it feels like Peter will never understand, but Jesus, the great teacher, says what? This is immediately after this. He says... There is a remedy to your confusion. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That is the ultimate remedy to this confusion, friends. If you find yourself stuck that there is good and true and lovely and commendable things leading away from the cross, then you have mistaken the lovely, the true, and the good, and the beautiful. And the only way to remedy that confusion is to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. I'll say one more thing and then I I should pray. Like anything which is not the mere product of fleeting emotion or happenstance, Following Jesus is discipline. It is thing the thing that you can't do just by mere immediate effort alone. You need to apply it over time and you need to ask for help from God. You cannot do it alone and you cannot do it without the church. So there is hope. There is hope that we will not turn away from the cross. There is hope that we won't jeer at the cross. But the only way we can avoid the jeering and the turning away is by taking it up. Let's pray. Lord, I have been preaching to myself today. I am convicted of my own sermon. I have too often been satisfied by saying what is right rather than by actually putting it into practice. And I know, Lord, it is not a matter of my salvation, but it is a matter of my life with you. If I actually want to like heaven when I get there, Lord, it will be like following you. I pray that You do not let these things pass away from us like heavy words that we won't reflect on later, but that, that they'll bug us, Lord. Though there is so much freedom and goodness in your forgiveness, Lord, we must not make it licensed by not following you. I pray that we would celebrate communion with you and with each other, Lord. That we would draw near to one another and not feel lonely or despair from the fact that we have gotten what is good and true and beautiful wrong. But instead turn to you and to one another in love. In your name we pray. Amen.